Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, timeless investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting next to my co-founder, Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. Hey, we are going to be in New York. What date are we going to be in New York? What Uh, week? The week of November 11th, the week of Veterans Day. The week of November 11th. So Monday through Friday, we'll be there. So if you are interested in meeting up with Mr. Jeff and myself, uh, prospective investors, we're going to be talking about the fund. And then also, of course, the managed accounts we are leaving open as well. Um, reach out to me at info at focuscompounding.com and we will get you on the schedule. Uh, be sure to check out all of our content. Uh, we, uh, I've been uploading a lot of videos to YouTube. We have over 110 videos on YouTube, which okay. is crazy. And a lot of them are really obviously the podcast, mm-hmm. uh, but we're doing how-to videos as well. So definitely check that out, Focus Compounding. Um, and check out my Twitter, at Focus Compound. That's pretty much the best place to get a lot of the uh, content that we put out. Yeah. There's three videos a week. Yep. Three videos a week. And two podcasts. And two podcasts. Yep. So we are uh, pumping out a lot of content. So in today's video, we're going to be going over the only way that buy and hold really works for investors. And the goal of every investor, if you are going to do it yourself, obviously is to outperform the market. Otherwise, you should just go buy the SPY or some sort of market index Mm -hmm. that's very low cost um, and sort of ride the roller coaster like that. So we want to talk about how you can almost make it worthwhile Okay. If you are investing yourself for buy and hold, right, and um, you know it's a good topic. I think you said that somebody had emailed you about it, so yes. you were recently talking to somebody about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so maybe we could go through because I think we think about it a little bit differently than other managers think about it. Okay, um, so let's go through you know that whole process. Okay, and I know I think I don't know if it was Munger or Buffett. They say that over time. The returns that you get should approximate the returns of the business, right? Right, from like a return on equity or return on capital perspective. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Um, so maybe let's you know start from the beginning, how the math works, okay, and then how individuals could think about trying to make it worthwhile, um, you know, to outperform the market. Sure. So the first thing that I'll talk about is uh, two things I've kind of hinted at before, but haven't gone into detail about why mathematically they work that way. So one is that I think. And we'll see if this can, is true, you know, in the future. But my guess would be that indexing actually performs worse than simply buying a basket, the ba- the index yourself, equally now, and then holding it. So if you were to buy uh, one five hundredth of your portfolio in the S and P five hundred, equal weight them, and just hold it forever without ever adding or taking away from any of them, yeah. and if they merge, you keep the stock and whatever. I expect that will outperform the index. That all the things that the index does, even before its fees, which are small, but even before its fees will actually cause like Vanguard and stuff to slightly um, underperform you just doing that. Now, no one tracks that. No one tracks, I just bought everything on this day and then held it. Some academic stuff has gone back and looked at that. But there's there's suggestions in how stocks 
work that that should outperform. Okay. Now it's not a huge difference, and people like the index, and the index is sort of what they compare themselves to. Yeah. But I expect that actually just buying a basket of stocks and holding it would outperform adjusting that basket over time the way that indexes are managed. Now, why is that? Why do you think that? Here's why: because a small minority of uh, stocks or a minority of stocks will actually create value over their lifetime. Most stocks will not. So the weird thing is that, um, as you know, like uh, looking over a 10-year period or something, uh, it's almost never the case that like cash outperforms stocks. And even longer periods, let's say 20 years or something, bonds don't outperform stocks. When you go as long as like 20 years, it doesn't seem to matter. Stocks are a better investment than almost any other asset class. But the way they get that return is really strange. So if you just randomly picked a stock, I think there's a very good chance. In fact, I think it's probably higher than 50% chance that just picking that stock and holding it forever will outperform even things like bonds. So I think that the average stock, if you threw a dart at a uh, board of the average stock, not now the S&P 500 is a little weird because those are all once successful companies. Sure, yeah. But if you just took all thousands of stocks that are publicly traded and you randomly picked one and held it, I think on the probabilities, the odds are you would underperform uh, even something as simple as bonds, and you would certainly underperform the index by a huge amount, probably. Um, in terms of just if we did that for everyone, everyone instead of we picked 500 people and we all gave them one stock to be their portfolio. Now, but as an index, when you put them together, the outperformance is so big, compounded in some businesses that it, when you blend it together, it results in stocks really outperforming. So what happens is because you pick 10 stocks instead of one stock to form your portfolio and then you hold them all, mm-hmm. a couple of them or one of them will perform so well and will become such a big part of your portfolio if you don't rebalance it that it will cause you to outperform. And it's a rebalancing thing with the index is the reason why I think uh, it'll underperform. Uh huh. So okay. So let's go to you know what people should look for. I guess to outperform. What should they right. focus on? Because I think it's interesting. We have a sort of a filter process when we're looking at new companies ourselves. Mm-hmm. I guess from like a bird's eye view, you right. know, ten thousand foot overview. When we're looking at new companies, we obviously want to see a very stable, um, you know, return on equity. We mm-hmm. like it to be over ten percent in pretty yes. much every single year. Yeah. Because again, you want to make sure that the business itself is going to generate returns greater than 10% a year. Correct. And even from like a money management perspective, but for everybody listening who's just trying to outperform the market because they're doing it themselves, mm-hmm. if you think the market over time does roughly what, 8% a year sure. maybe yeah. over time, uh, you want to invest in businesses that where the the returns of the actual business are greater than 8% a year. So maybe that 10% starting with that number, and if it's a very predictable 10%, mm-hmm. that's a good place to start with, right. right? But the actual returns of the business is what matters. Yes. So the math is pretty simple this way. What matters, it, so it doesn't matter what the past returns were at all, mm-hmm. and it does not matter what the current returns on equity are to the extent the company doesn't reinvest. It only matters what growth there will be and how much capital the company has to put in. Now, the way I do it, which is different from everyone else, but is... I believe theoretically the correct way to do it and the only way that you can capture certain stocks, the best performers, is that you ask how much will this company grow in the future and then you ask how much capital has to be put in. So you flip the return on equity. Uh, And I want to stop you right there, right? Because a lot of people always ask from our videos when we talk about we think the business can grow you know, 5% a year for the next 10 years. 
what does that growth mean? They're like growth in, in, in per share, growth matter. in uh, EPS, right. growth in return. What does that mean? It, over long periods of time, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So it's the central tendency of all of those things. So for some companies, so measured so over synonymous short. synonymous in a way. Yeah, yeah. Because what's happening, why people are asking that question is measured over short periods of time, they will be very different. But measured over long periods of time, unless there's big changes in the company in terms of they're doing different things or they're big economies of scale or something, it shouldn't be a difference between those things. So at stable margins, an increase in sales and an increase in earnings will be the same percentage-wise, right? At um, And we're talking about per share numbers, which we'll get into more. Um, in terms of like if you had a stable return on equity, then you would have uh, the increase in book value and the increase in earnings be similar. Mm-hmm. Now, in some cases, that it, it, one will matter and the other one won't. We were talking recently about FICO. FICO doesn't need to have capital in the business. So over the last 10 years or so, it grew its sales by like 3% or so, but it actually shrank its assets, which is very powerful in terms of side of a great business. Yeah, that's an amazing side yeah. of business. And Dun & Bradstreet did something similar over about a 10-year period, which is an amazing thing. And um, so that's we can get into we'll get more into the math of it but having even a very low growth rate with no capital contributed it creates quite a lot of value and that's yeah and that's what I was going to say because not a lot of the businesses that we invest in they're not growing their revenues by you know 15 to 20% per right. year so why mm-hmm. do we put up uh, why do those companies annualize a number that's you know better than the market and right. a very good return and, and here's why because it's the relationship between the amount of new growth that they have incremental growth while you own the business and incremental capital put into the business of shareholder money so it's the money that they t- that they retain from you that would be your earnings but instead is retained in the business versus their sales growth so or book value growth or anything. Yeah, things. Yep. The, the, basically, what we actually care about is free cash flow growth, but I don't say free cash flow growth because the average business you're looking at has such unstable free cash flow, it's not helpful, but the normal level of free cash flow. So like if a company is converting 10% of sales into free cash flow on average, and that's very stable, like a brand might do that, mm-hmm. um, then you can just track sales growth or gross profit growth or free cash flow growth over time, and they should all be pretty similar, right? Yeah, it yeah. should be their earning power as, as a Graham would call it. Um, so the important thing, though, is that it's the relationship between those two things. So the the example I give of this is I hear people say all the time you need to invest in emerging markets yeah. because they have higher growth. And that's just – it's wrong. It mathematically doesn't make any sense because it's per unit of capital that matters. So an emerging market, for instance, like China, it might be good to be a worker in China because your your wages might go up very fast. Mm-hmm. But to be a business owner in China, to be a, an equity investor, it only helps you if you're getting good returns on a um, per unit of capital basis. So basically return on equity matters and growth matters together. But for countries, return on equity is going to matter more. So if you look historically at the um, – countries that have performed the best over the last 100 years or something, it's not countries that have the highest growth rates. It's companies that have the highest returns on equity. And countries that um, – uh, so countries that retain the least amount of earnings relative to the amount of growth that they create. And so here's the math that it works with. If you're trying to outperform, yep. it's pretty simple. You just use as the um, rate that you have to clear the hurdle rate is the total return in the thing you're comparing it to. So say the S&P 500, yep. let's say 8%. Mm-hmm. Okay, So you think the S&P 500 will return 8% a year forever. Your question now is, should the business pay out earnings to me, mm-hmm. Okay, or can it retain it and create value? Yep. The only way it can retain it and create value relative to what you could get generally in the market is if it earns a greater than 8% return on what it retains. 
which means that that's one divided by 0.08. Mm-hmm. That's 12.5. So for every, so if you think this company can um, grow EPS by one cent this year, yeah, okay, you want to make sure that it does not retain more than 12.5 cents of your earnings. If it does, you have a problem. And in fact, there's no value created. There's no benefit created by a company growing, say, 7% a year while retaining all of its earnings to do that. And mathematically, you can figure that out, and you should be able to see this easily by thinking in terms of what do stocks normally return? Mm-hmm. How do they return it? Yeah. So like historically, a stock might return 5 or 6% in like sales growth and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking like the 1900s. This was about the rate, 5 to 6% in sales per share, earnings per share, um, dividends per share. The growth rate in all those things was about 5 or 6%. Okay, That's pretty close to like nominal GDP. They also paid a dividend of like 3% yield on their price. So at you add those two things together and you get 8 or 9%, which yeah. happens to be about what the return would have been mm-hmm. in the stocks. Now, it could go up or down a little bit depending on if you, if you started with a low PE or a high PE. That matters very little over very long periods of time. So like 100 years, that should matter almost nothing. But over like 10 years, that could be most of your return is the multiple expansion and contraction. So the point is... A company that grows that either pays out a dividend yield of eight or nine percent, or a company that grows um, eight or nine percent but pays no dividend, are pretty much equivalent to you mm-hmm. in terms of your returns. Now, if they could grow for a long time at higher rates, then growth could be more valuable to you. Where you'd want them to retain it and keep investing. Yes. So if they earn a high return on equity, that could be. It has to exceed the return that you expect in the stock market, yeah. though. So basically, it matters how much they're retaining and that it exceeds that number. So it's once you clear that number that you think it is like 8% or something. So the number that I use, just because it's convenient, is 10. Because I don't think the market will turn more than 10% a year. Yeah. 10's a nice round number. Mm-hmm. And then. If you want to make sure, the other thing is that cyclically, there's problems. Into we could get, I mean, it's a little complicated, but we can get into compounding stuff in terms of averages. People often will use like the arithmetic average or something, which is the highest average in a series, and the lowest would be the harmonic average. So, and in between, you get the geometric average. So, if you're looking at something, the easiest way to do it is to eyeball the way the harmonic average works, which is to say, okay, what are the lowest years? Are they still above the number that I need? So um, like biased down for the worst years. So if you're seeing a company, and all the, many of the great companies work this way, if they returned more than the market in terms of the return on equity in all years, then any growth that they have is sort of creating value. Mm-hmm, sure. Now, incrementally, it's a little complicated because if you had a 30% return on equity and it's going down, your incremental returns are poor. But if we're just talking long term, if you're always seeing numbers for return on equity that are over 10%, like some great companies, their return on equity is never below 15%. Or something, then any growth they have is going to create a lot of value. But what I want to warn people about is the difference between 0% growth and like 7% growth at low returns on equity is not helpful at all. That's why emerging markets don't outperform um, uh, developed markets, for instance, because their returns on equity are not higher. And so having growth at seven points higher or something isn't helpful if it's not done at high returns on equity. And you're saying that if a business just for your rule of thumb of being 10% return on equity, they should pay. You you would like to see them pay it all out to shareholders, essentially, because they're not creating value. Less than 10%. Yeah, Yeah, less than 10%. There are tax considerations and stuff that I didn't put in there. But just as a a general rule. Right, yeah. Yeah. And that's also why I avoid getting too technical on it is because of things like tax and stuff. So the fact that there's a tax rate cut, there's also been changes in capital gains taxes, dividends taxes for people individually at times. Those things would affect this calculation, but they don't change the business enough so that like long-term you want to make sure that the business – 
in any tax environment is still earning what you needed mm -hmm. to earn. Um, but the other part of the calculation that's important is that I think uh, people get confused about is um, they think like a high return equity is good um, in all cases. And a high return equity is going to benefit you as the shareholder only to the extent that they're retaining earnings in the future or to the extent that they're growing. Yeah. Now, I would say growth without any retained earnings is the best of all. And so that's why I flip it. Sure. Right. Yeah. But if a company does not grow... Because they don't need to retain the earnings to grow, is what right, you're saying. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I've said before, you can have your cake and eat it too, basically. So that's the reason why things like... Um, ad agencies outperformed for a long time. Mm -hmm. If you look at their sales growth or something, it sometimes was in line with the market. Mm -hmm. But the combination of sales growth, dividends, and buybacks would cause an increase on a per share basis so that you would like get a 9%. Uh, so like say they were growing 6% a year. But if they buy back 3% of their shares a year and they pay a 3% dividend, you've yeah. suddenly gone to getting a 12% return, mm -hmm. right? Instead of their, if someone else is... Um, growing 6% a year and paying a 3% dividend, they're only in a 9% return. And compounded, it makes a huge difference. So the other issue is that you um, – so growth is not valuable unless you have a high enough return on equity. Sure, yeah. Um, but the return on equity is not valuable unless you have growth. And this is also a timing issue in terms of people are looking backwards. When you buy the stock, it only matters what their return on equity will be going forward. It's really what their return on their retained earnings will be. And it only matters if they grow. So having a high return on equity, like not needing capital in the business now, is fine. But it doesn't help them unless they're able to get some growth out of the business. So you don't want to see high return on equity and no growth. That doesn't help sure. you. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And so my point is, at a no growth business, it doesn't really matter at a no growth business what the return on equity is. And at a bad return on equity business, it doesn't matter what the growth is. Mm -hmm. What matters is a combination of adequate growth and adequate return on equity. And you see that over and over again with what companies are successful. It's, you know, the company, it's like Phil Fisher companies and things, which are often things that grow at like, or Peter Lynch invests in some of these 15% a year, year after year. The only way they can do that is if they have returns on equity that are in the double digits. Yeah. That's how they're able to grow at those rates all the time. Mm -hmm. They're self-financing most of it, you know. That's a great value. I was gonna say, so does the you know getting to your self financing point? Does mm -hmm. the calculation change if they have debt? So does it go right. from return on equity to return on invested capital? So now you're take you're accounting for that other side of the balance sheet. So this is complicated. Um, in general, you don't want to use any leveraged returns. I was gonna say, or are you just looking at companies that? typically are not leveraged. I mean, a lot of the companies we look at don't have leverage. They're not we leveraged. tend to stay away There's from it. Real... So that's why we use return on equity for a lot of stuff. Yeah. We we don't invest. We tend to invest in things with very low leverage. And I think people think that's a safety thing. And I'm not saying that's not a safety thing, but it's not that I don't think you can carry debt safely. Yeah. It's a, it's a return thing. Mm -hmm. So this is a time-shifting issue. There are companies. Private equity operates with, for as long as they own a company, by targeting a certain amount of debt and keeping it at that level. Um, some John Malone companies operate mm -hmm. that way where they intend to always keep a high level of debt. Yeah. There are some very safe companies like railroads and some things like that that constantly use very long-term bonds to finance part of their business. You have to kind of estimate whether they'll always have access to that and whether it's possible. Yeah. But the for most companies, the problem is that they will change how much debt they have at times. And so this has a huge impact on your returns in the stock. And it's a timing thing. So if you buy into a leveraged company today and it deleverages over the next 10 years, your returns will be very poor compared to what you expect. They'll be much worse than the business. Because what's happening is, let's say you are paying a um, like 5% um, interest rate mm -hmm. okay, on your bonds or your loans or whatever. And then you can deduct that for, interest for uh, tax purposes. So you're really paying like 4% after tax. 
So if you have a company and they take three or four or five years in a row of free cash flow and dedicate most of it while you own the stock to paying down that debt, what you have to understand is that's the same as if they went out and invested in a project that returns 4% after tax. Sure, it's yeah. that bad. Mm -hmm. It's hard to think of anything that's as unprofitable as paying down debt. Paying down debt is a very, very low return uh, after uh, cash return after taxes, which is what matters. Um, use of cash, mm -hmm. it's terrible. Yeah, and except for companies that are super heavily indebted and have just uh, incredibly high interest rates and things like that, it almost never makes sense from the perspective of the shareholder. It, so y the way to avoid that obviously is investing in companies that don't yet have debt. Mm -hmm. While we own them, they might add debt, which could create value because sure. they're not using retained earnings yeah. to do this, and um, you're avoiding the. Reverse, which is investing in leverage companies. Investing in leverage companies sounds attractive to people because you're like, oh, I'm getting a leverage return on my money. Yeah, yeah. But remember, it's incremental. So if they're already at three times uh, debt to EBITDA or something, what matters is are they going to go to four while you own the stock or are they going to go to two? Mm -hmm. If we only invest in things that are zero net debt, we have a much better chance, if we understand that management isn't going to just pile up cash or something, that they'll go to one, two, three times uh, debt to EBITDA to like do an acquisition or something. They're not going to use our money to do it. They're going to borrow the money to do it. Mm -hmm. And we'll get leverage returns from incrementally from that. So it's often much better to invest in a company that doesn't have debt, and then they'll add the debt while you own it. This is a tiny thing that's really important. What your returns you get in a stock are do not matter what they were before you bought the stock. They don't matter what they were after you bought the stock. It's whether they add or take away debt while you're investing in the stock. It's what their return on retained earnings is while you invest in the stock because it's the value creation that happens yeah. that way. Yeah. So let's get very theoretical here right. and annoying. What would you pay for a business that's incredibly predictable, incredibly durable? Mm -hmm. It's been around for a very long time. Let's say they paid out a pretty solid dividend for 20, 30 years. Okay. Um, and let's say that the return on equity, they don't have debt. The return on equity is 15% plus, okay. which has been very predictable mm -hmm. or very you know steady. Sure. Well, we, how much times earnings would you pay for a business like that? Or look to? Like, let's say you saw a multiple, and maybe I, we could do it okay. inverted a little bit. Let's All say right. you saw a trading in the market for 10 times earnings. Would you be interested to learn why that company is only trading for 10 times earnings? Yes. Yeah. So a company at 10 times earnings. And I ask that because I think a lot, I get all these DMs on Twitter mm -hmm. with people ask me like, how we, you know, how would we value this? And then they go into like, you know, doing all these different adjustments and stuff for EBITDA. Like they just really, um, they're coming at it from a very like academic standpoint, Okay, I guess like, and they're trying to throw a formula on it. Mm -hmm. But I think if people thought or actually saw the way, and obviously we've done this so many times, the way that you think about valuing companies, it's a lot simpler than they um, would imagine it to be. And that's a good thing, right? Because then you kind of bake in, you're more conservative with it. There's more of a margin of safety right there. Um, I think you think about it more so as not just a stock analyst, you think about it more so from like a business perspective, right? Yeah. So uh, just as an example, I mean, it's pretty easy to do just in round numbers to think about. Yeah. Um, we're probably not going to, I don't think that any business, no matter how good, it would be hard for me to come up with a value for any business, no matter how good it, that I'd have confidence in, at more than about 33 times earnings. So I would never pay that much. But if someone argued that a company was worth 33 times earnings, it might be possible that I would say, yeah, they might be right. Um, on the other hand, a business, no matter how bad, if it's not allocating capital poorly, is unlikely to be worth less than 10 times earnings. Mm -hmm. uh, free cash flow. So I should make that clear. I actually mean free cash flow after tax. 
Uh, so let's just say EV divided by free cash flow uh-huh. for our purposes. Let's say there's no – so EV and market cap are the same, you know, free cash flow. Uh, the reason for that is because if a business had a 10% free cash flow yield, it would outperform the market over time sure. uh, simply by buying back uh, stock or paying out a dividend. Mm-hmm. Now, the issue is many times they'll reinvest in their own business. Sure. And so if their return is less than a certain percentage, we just don't want to touch they them. They return the return on equity. The return on equity, yep. yeah. So um, it, it – so they'll do that. So, but if they weren't, it, theoretically, if they weren't, then I'd be fine with that. It doesn't matter what their past return on equity was, as long as they're paying out or buying back stock or doing whatever with that ten percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's if they reinvested any of it into the business at the rates that they had. Um, so, like for instance, even buying back stock would be fine because you'd be buying back stock at a ten percent free cash flow yield. Yeah, now you're yeah. buying a poor business inside it, but if you never put more money into the business, it would be fine. Mm-hmm. Overwhelmingly, companies do put money back in the business, so we almost always avoid companies with less than a ten percent return on equity because we don't believe that they will stop putting any money sure, into them. Yeah. However, like Warren Buffett or something tried pretty hard. He didn't put nothing into it to not put money into the Berkshire Hathaway textile mills and to shift it to other things. So mm-hmm. it's not impossible. And, and there are companies like that, like uh, Berkshire Hathaway, Teledyne, things like that, that were managed in that way. So what should stand out to people? Right. So this is what like right. past couple of days I've been going through a bunch of companies. Okay. Right? We ran a screen and then I've been doing, you know, going to uh, quickfs.com. Okay. Yes. Which no affiliation to us, but it's a great uh, website that we use. Quickfs.net. Yeah. .net. Sorry. I think, .net. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. It's great. It, uh, it's very, very quick. quick. Yeah. Um, you know, just for like a, a snapshot of the financials, mm-hmm. like the Kagers and stuff like that. So definitely check that out. Um, you know, but what is something that because I, I always want I want them to be able to take something away right, okay. from listening. So what's something that should stand out to them when we're looking for companies? And maybe I could say, so I already said before that we don't like anything that, um, you know, and these are just sort of filters just to mm-hmm. really throw everything in in just the I don't care pile. So anything that has a 10% or I'm sorry, uh, a return equity of less than 10%, yeah. we don't care about it. Mm-hmm. And the rationale behind that is you think, you know, um, if the market's a, or if the stock's able to return their earnings, we think markets over time do anywhere from maybe 8%. Right. The 10% is just, if you want to outperform the market, you probably don't want to play in that field. Correct, right? Right, yeah. Um, okay, so then what is somebody else, something else that people should look sales at? Growth. So sales growth? We want growth, yeah. I mean, and how much? I mean, what's, I mean, what's, because um, again, I think a, be a lot of people, people uh, they may be surprised that we're not, typically buying companies that are growing sales by 20% per year. It could be low. It depends on the price. I mean, at, if you're getting more than 10% free cash flow yield, you don't need growth. You'll outperform the market without growth. Yeah. Um, so as, even if you get like a 5% growth in sales, that's pretty amazing. good if it has a trading at 10% free, FICO free cash grew, flow yield. FICO grew top line 3% a year for 10 years, and the stock returned 30% a year. So. Exactly. Good. That's but, exactly what I wanted but to you, say. But buying it at 10 times earnings, at 10 times free yeah. cash flow, basically. Yeah. And then they bought back their stock and stuff. But the key things are, one, it started at 10 times free cash flow. It ends at like 50 or something yeah. absurd. But the other key is that they never made an investment that was bad. I mean, you could argue that in the last year or so, buying back their own stock has yeah. been not smart just because of the price. But they never did a low return investment because their core business is so good and they didn't reinvest in retained earnings into it. So basically, it's like you just increase price. You just you know do this thing. It's like Seize Candy or whatever. Yeah, yeah. If you pay a reasonable price for something like FICO or Seize Candy or whatever, you need almost no growth. And that's kind of like CSI Industries. Mm-hmm. CSVI, we owned it. I think we paid 16 times earnings. Yeah. And we sold it for 25 times earnings, maybe. Mm-hmm. It's not like their top line growth is growing more than 10% a year. I think it's like, what, 4, the, 5, uh, 6% It vastly like overperformed the market over 10 years during which it grew to top line by 6% a year. Yeah, so 6%. Yeah. But we also annualized in that stock it, but a, remember a pretty big the, amount. The entire period, the return on equity was between 20 and 25%. Exactly a year. my point. Yeah. yeah. So, so with so, no debt. 
with zero yeah. leverage. Yeah. yeah. So look for companies that have, I guess, the general filter that we use if you want to replicate for yourself. If a company has less than return of equity of 10, we're not even interested in it. Mm-hmm. If it has more than 10, you want to look to see how stable that's been. Yeah. Right. You look at, uh, you can look at the 10 year Kager in revenue, EPS, mm-hmm. free cash flow, yeah. what the free cash flow yield is, mm-hmm. what are other things that they should um, look at. And if we're doing all of that, mm-hmm. like for example, CSI Industries, it's right. north of 20 with zero leverage. Obviously, that's something that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. And then if you could find a business like that where it's very durable, very predictable, and you could pick it up for 15 times earnings or 16 times earnings, right. which is obviously very cheap. Yeah. You know, that's the way we kind of think about it from a handicapping perspective. Yeah. In terms of the future growth, the value that it will create. So earning higher returns than the market and having revenue growth, what it does is it means that each dollar they retain will create more than a dollar in market value. That's the Buffett test. And that's true over long periods of time. It won't work over short periods of time, but over long periods of time, that's the only way you get compounders. Yeah. So the three things that matter are just, is the return on equity high enough? The return on the retained earnings is really what matters. Yep. But is the return on equity high enough? It, will it grow in the future? Can it grow? And then the third one is how long can that continue for? The best business is it can continue basically forever. Mm-hmm. So what amazes people will be like the Coca-Cola or whatever, what it does over 100 years, not necessarily very high growth rates, good growth rates, but always at good enough returns on equity, always some growth, and at all points in its history, seemed like it could keep growing into the future. Mm-hmm. The problem that a lot of companies have is it will stop at some point. So you have to find something that can always have a double-digit return on equity, always have some revenue growth, and seems like it can grow f- forever at those rates. Yeah. Now, that might mean it can grow over at 4 or 5% a year at, with a 20% return on equity. That doesn't sound amazing to people, but if you pay a reasonable price for that, you will actually beat the market mm-hmm. with that kind of... And I think the way that we invest is a lot of other people, they, they're sort of... I guess mantra, if you way, or if you will, is invest and then verify, right. right? I think the way that we invest is there's not a lot of verification going on, right? Because the business is so predictable, it's so durable. They've been doing the same thing for a very long time, so yeah. it really comes down to I think handicapping the stock. So where you find a great business and at the time now it's trading for 15 times earnings, mm-hmm. you know when it shouldn't. Yeah, that's a clear you know inefficiency in the market, you know. Yeah, we almost never bet on change. Yeah. And, that's and a good. lot of people bet on change. Yeah, and absolutely. changes do happen sometimes, but we almost never bet on change. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Cool. Well, that was man, that was a great podcast. <laughs> okay. People, if you're listening and you like the work we're doing here, be sure to give us a, a five stars, leave a rating and review. That helps spread the word for Mr. Jeff and myself. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us. Um, check out Jeff's Gazette that is going out. You could sign up for that on our homepage, FocusCompounding.com. Uh, you'll get a email from Jeff once every two weeks. Yes, once every two weeks, and then in there there will be a watch list because. Our watch list hasn't changed too much. Once a week was becoming a little bit uh, redundant. So we think, only one thing would change a week. Yeah, yeah. literally. So uh, you'll get more of a change if that's uh, every two weeks. So I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with me here today. If you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up, and everybody else, I hope you have a great week, and we will see you in the next podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to follow along.